Welcome to episode 146 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. I'm Brian Levin. Today we sat down with Amber Cartwright. She's a design manager at Airbnb. We dig into her background as a dancer and how she ended up at Airbnb as a design manager, what she's up to now, their team, uh, lots of other cool stuff. But before we get into that, we want to thank our sponsors for making this episode possible. First up, Dropbox. Hey, Dropbox. Dropbox is on a mission to simplify the way people like you work with other people like us, uh, and they need you to help them. Design has always been a differentiator at Dropbox, all the way back in 2007 when Dropbox was just a file-sharing syncing service. Just. Their designers spent thousands of hours sweating out the details to create the product that we all know and love. And here we are almost 10 years later, uh, they're working to change the way we collaborate together. So it's more than just file syncing, it's thinking about the way people work together, the way people build products together, and they want you to join them. Uh, They want you to join their design process, which is super collaborative and cross-functional with researchers, writers, product designers, managers, illustrators, all coming together to solve problems that make our lives easier. They have a beautiful new office here in Soma that you can join. Uh, Bryn and I got to go there a month ago. They have a gorgeous office and you should at least go check it out, say what's up. They're hiring product designers, product managers, and the brightest minds in the industry to help ship great products and make it easier to work together on the internet. So if that sounds interesting at all, go to spec.fm. If you're a product designer or a design manager and want to work at Dropbox and change the way that people collaborate online in the future. This is your chance. They're looking for you. Again, that's spec.fm slash Dropbox. Our second sponsor is a new one and it's called Skirt. Skirt. S-K-U-R-T. Skirt. Skirt? Anyway, Skirt is a mobile app that allows you to tap a button and have a car delivered to you wherever you are. So then when you're done, uh, they come and pick it up for, for you. So you can do everything from like get a Corolla for a long commute or a convertible for a ride up the coast or a Mercedes for a night out, or even a moving van. You get the car when you need it, and it's a car that fits what you want to do with it. Uh, no lines or rental counters to deal with, no under 25 or gas fill-up fees, and so they've just raised a bunch of money, and what they're using it for is to hire a bunch of designers, which is pretty awesome. Uh, they're trying to bring in the very best talent. Uh, they're looking for senior product designers and visual designers to work directly with uh, one, of, one of their co-founders is a designer as well as they've got a creative director currently and they're working on big product and brand changes overall iterations and you can have a giant impact on the direction of the product and brand overall and signs will be seen and used by tens of thousands of users overnight so pretty good starting point so it's a cool product they're ramping up an easy way to get a car delivered to you and it's a startup so you have a chance to have a ton of impact if you're a designer and need a job want to move on to the next best thing, go to spec.fm slash skirt. That's S-K-U-R-T. And that'll take you to learn more about the job. Uh, Of course, if you want to try the product itself, you can use the promo code design20 and that'll get you $20 off your first time booking a car. So double bonus, book a car, save 20 bucks with design20 promo code or go to spec.fm slash skirt to get a job. With that, let's get into episode 146 with Amber Cartwright. Hi, I'm Amber Cartwright. Um, I'm a design manager at Airbnb. Simple. Simple, straightforward. What are you working on? Uh, These days I'm working on um, lots of things. Um, What I do at Airbnb is I get to work on both sides of our marketplace uh, for our guest side and our host side. And actually that is what my team is called. It's the marketplace. 
Uh, so I work on, you know, once people come in, we try and keep them there um, and make sure that they're happy. The other name of our team is Guest Love. So we want to make sure that um, guests love our, our service and that they're wanting to stay and take trips. Uh, so, you know, I get to work on lots of fun things within that. Um, the the core search experience for our travelers. And because it's a marketplace, we also have to think of the other side. So mm-hmm. we think about our hosts within that as well. We think about the booking and the challenges that our hosts have with booking. And we also think about price because price affects both the tools that our hosts you know need to have and what the guests need to see within that mm-hmm. as well and what they need within pricing. How long have you been at Airbnb? I've been there a little over two years now. Nice. So that's a veteran in Airbnb world. Yeah. That's a veteran in the design world. No one sticks around <laughs> for more than a year. It's true. Uh, where are you originally from? North Carolina. Wow. Yeah, I grew up on the Outer Banks. Nice. Yeah, wild horses running around and everything. Like rural. Rural. Whoa. Remote. And now you're in tech. Now I'm in tech. So how long were you in North Carolina? Until I was 18. And then I left at 18 and I went to undergraduate where I got a BFA in dance, ah. actually. Yep. Um, and from there, I was in a company uh, for a while in North Carolina and actually out here in San Francisco. What was the company? Um, I did some work here for a woman, Mary Carbonara. Okay. Um, her husband is uh, Robert Moses, uh, the Moses Contemporary Dance Company. Okay. Um, so I danced for her um, out here. In what context? Contemporary dance, modern dance. Assume I know nothing about <laughs> dance. Yep. And that assumption will be correct. And that assumption will be correct. <laughs> uh, so you were dancing for them in like shows like live shows yes okay in shows yes in a company aspect um so my life uh before design i was dance company dance company yes so my life before design i was dancing eight hours a day and then at night i was you know doing whatever i could to make money outside of the the dance world you know waiting tables doing other things to 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 live and you know I was maybe 21, 22, and I was not seeing a path forward. And you know, at like at 30, I'd either have to start teaching and not, you know, have a trajectory beyond 30, really, you know, in a dance life. So I was like, well, what am I going to do next? And I had done some choreography with a sound artist and architect while I was in college. And we did a site specific work while I was in school. And he did all of the sound and um, he had built some installations into a wall and I did the choreography where he also choreographed the sound and um, water display on the walls and I reached out to him and I was like that is really cool I want to know how you did the tech and how you did all the sound work to that like how did you do that and he was like well there's this program at NYU it's called ITP and you might really be interested in it you could do dance and technology. I was like, okay, well, let me check it out. And he referred me there and I went to ITP and that launched my digital career from there. What does ITP mean? Interactive telecommunications program. (sighs) Yeah. And there's like a dance subsection of that. Well, I went there for dance and I ended up um, meeting Clay Shirky, who became my mentor. And I just became obsessed with social networks. And at the time it was MySpace and Friendster. Uh Uh-huh. And the good old days. The good old days. Wait, has that changed? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, wait, you I guys know. aren't on MySpace. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had you in my top eight. <laughs> <laughs> Man, those were the good old days. <laughs> those were top eight. Mm. 
And anyway, so I became kind of, I, I started becoming interested in other things. Um, but when I left, my first job in design was motion graphics, which I think made sense for me. I was basically choreographing motion on screen. Mm-hmm. You know, I was doing what I already knew um, with motion and movement. In For like what, what kind of I was of doing, um, at a design studio, I was doing like um, motion graphics for actually uh HBO and things like that for their trailers for, at the time it was DVDs and smaller clips that would go in between um, when you were seeing like shows on HBO, like the in between graphics and interstitials. Yeah. Yeah. For, Hey, this is teasing the next thing that's coming out. So I did that for a studio for a little while and that just, you know, I kept just working and doing other things. Why did you go that path instead of the like sound tech Mm. dance combination route? I think, you know, when I got to NYU and got to see like, wow, there's just so many other things. I was, ITP was really kind of a special program. There's only 150 students um, there accepted and half of them were also international. And it was a program where I was learning basic X sensors and it was hacking things and you're a maker. And I just realized I just became passionate about so many other things that dance, I was like, that was one part of my life. And I already did that. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to do something else. And it just transitioned. It was just a natural transition for me. I just wanted to be challenged by something new. And so I started a new path. And that something new ended up being design for me, digital design. That transition to motion design seems like so like obvious now. Like thinking about like the motion it takes to communicate emotion and, and like human feelings i can't think of anyone who'd know more about that than a dancer right yeah like that's crazy yeah it felt it felt really natural for me you know just seeing how to blend things and i mean if you could see me like i'm using my hands and and waving (laughs) that's really good audio content (laughs) (laughs) but how things move and i think that's still part of something that i really use a lot today in my work is how motion and things move on screen and that that still is something very natural to me um, so I, I actually still use a lot of what I did for the first 20 years of my life and work that I do today. I think the last year has been really interesting because the idea of choreographed products um, has become a lot more in vogue, I think. Uh, well, mat- no one talks about it that way. <laughs> but, uh, material, no, material does, right? They like, refer to it as choreography? Yeah. Yeah. Your screen transitions are choreographed and there's like oh. a direction of motion and like preserving hierarchy with motion and things like that i could see ties back to any other digital ink and quantum paper (laughs) right right (laughs) well and i think motion is having a trend back up yeah for a while everything just went completely flat and static and now motion is coming back into having breathing life back into a product and a lot of the things that i was doing really early on with title sequencing and after effects is now we have the capabilities to do it again, like in the product. And Mm -hmm. it's just funny, like the skills I was using about 10 years ago are now resurfacing itself in the stuff that I'm doing. But are the tools getting better? I don't know if the tools are getting better because I'm still using After Effects. (laughs) (laughs) So, hmm. Do you think designers have over-pivoted on the importance of motion? Well, it's funny you asked that. I don't think so. When I look back at the the history of the trends, I think they over pivoted on it when back in the flash days, and we over corrected ourselves 
then and just went like, oh my gosh, we went way too far. So we're going to just overcorrect ourselves and just not do a ton of motion at all and just go really plain. And now we're just coming back into like a nice healthy balance of where we should be with the, the pendulum's like slowing down. Yeah. Right. Like swing way out on each direction, see what feels good and then come back into the middle. And someday we'll arrive in like with a, a healthy happy, balance, a happy middle. Yeah. I yeah. think we're getting there. Um, so how long did you do motion design work for HBO? Um, it was only for a couple of years. And then after that, um, Oh, that was only when I was in grad school. So that was like to get me through grad school. And then when I left grad school, I went to Ireland and worked for a startup for about a year. What's the startup scene like in Ireland? Oh, wow. At and the time. Ireland? Wait, wait, wait. Ireland? wait. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> well, when I left grad school, we were in a recession. So there were no jobs to be had in the U.S. So I just blind, like blind applied for jobs wherever I could, like internationally. And the startup in Dublin picked me up. And I was like, okay, let's do it. You were cold emailing international mm-hmm. startups. Yep. Did like, you wherever have will take me. Criteria? <laughs> no. I was <laughs> like, please just take me. I need a job. But um, like, didn't matter what they were making. You're just like, I need. Well, I mean, the criteria was I wanted to be working, you know, in products, doing something in the social sphere, because that's where I had like kind of focused in um, grad school. Uh, but I really didn't have too many criteria because i just needed a gig coming out of like that's kind of scary <laughs> well i mean i left you know and also just moved to new york not knowing anybody and went to grad school without knowing a soul i guess i just took a few leaps in life um but yeah it was a it was the first company to do mobile blogging um so it was way back when things were still in wap <laughs> wap yeah. WAP. You guys don't, you don't remember this? No. What's, uh, uh. so remember like, uh, yes, WAP. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. But just in case, could you remind me or the audience? <laughs> so this is, um, then back then when things were SMS and you were pushing like photos through, uh, push. So that is how you could actually, you had to push photos and that, particular method like it wasn't like you could just look at things through a browser you had to you had to push photos almost through sms and it was like a wap push what what does wap stand for (laughs) i don't remember the exact acronym what that means okay but we were we were trying to have a way to view through like browser so you could actually see things on your phone crazy yeah um so we were building it for a particular operator at that time like it was a so T-Mobile is the U.S. who we were trying to build it for an operator mm-hmm. in Ireland. Um, so I was working on their like social promotions and campaigns while I was there. Was that motion work as well? Mm-hmm. Or no, it was just strictly product? like product work. Wow. Um, and then I left there and then went and came back and did video content work. At the recession T-Mobile. ended and you're like, yeah. I'm, I, I'm I stayed for my year with my visa and I came back. And I worked at uh, Teen People and did all of their online video content. Teen People. Teen People. What was that like? It was amazing. I did all the red carpet video work. Cool. <laughs> all their online editing. Um, I worked the camera and did the the sound and like live video work. And then I came back and got to do the motion graphics and video editing and pushed it online. It was super fun. I got to meet all kinds of fun people. Went to all the parties. <laughs> all the Teen great. People parties. <laughs> Wait, why Teen People? Um, I knew someone there, and she had done all the video work, and I got to be 
the person who, you know, they, they, I was the only one doing the online video content. So I got to kind of control, like, what would the motion graphics content look like? Like, what would the video content look like? Uh, what would be the standard for the video content there? And they didn't have a lot of standards for video content at people, you know, the the company in general. Mm-hmm. So I was setting some standards there. It was pretty interesting for me. People have no standards. <laughs> it was really fun. People has no standards. That's the parent company, right? People. <laughs> <laughs> It was really fun. Bryn, just say you enjoyed the joke. Uh, how many <laughs> how many designers were there? At People? Yeah. Oh, I don't remember how big that team was. I mean, they had a framework. It was an editorial framework, like a CMS that you could push right, stuff right. to. And then they had their design team. I worked separately. I worked in the editorial team cool. and did all the video content. So I was the only one doing that work with the editorial team. The design team was in a separate room. So I don't I actually don't even know how big they were at that time. Isolated. Wow, that isolated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How long did you stay there? A couple of years. Cool. Yeah. Then what? Then I went to Portland and worked for a second story. What's second story? Second story is they did mainly environmental uh, site-specific work, like for museums. Um, so it was interactive installations. Uh, so like a lot press of, the button and hear and the hear bear and make... see and do things. Cool. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and it was a lot of the work was mainly done for educational and museum purposes. That's rad. So you're like doing physical space. Physical design. work. Yeah. Physical installations. Like which was what really would be cool. an example? Um, actually, uh, a lot of the work is in the Walt Disney Family Museum here in San Francisco Cool, would be one. Um, we did LA, um, the Staples Center, did some work there. Um, we did some work at in New York um, at the Woodstock Museum there in New York. So some pretty cool stuff. What are the constraints of museum installation design oh wow i mean it's down well, to going to a museum <laughs> has to be an installation <laughs> but i imagine there's like you're dealing a lot with sound isolation and its placement next to other objects distance between installations things and like that people i mean it and has kids? to be hardened <laughs> yeah right. i mean the the qa and the environment of the thing and how it can handle and withstand public torture children children <laughs> is really important um, and I mean it has to withstand the test of time what would be like an example installation that you worked on um let's see a is really, that the right word installation yeah an installation right. yeah um, one of my favorites was there's one in Santa Monica um, that was the Marion Davies home it was for um, William Randolph Hearst uh, he had a home for his mistress, Marion Davies, that he bought. Sly. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's in Santa Monica. And they restored it. The Annenberg Family um, Foundation restored the home and turned it into a community uh, center where the pool is like a community center. But it's all still restored and like the original um, foundation of the home. But then one of the the houses is like still intact. And it's a the history of them and Marion Davies. So we built an installation uh, that goes through the history of it and you can kind of see the history of them and William Randolph Hearst. And so the encasing of it is in wood and then you can you can just swipe through the history and learn about who they are. And it's in, it's actually encased 
in wood and it looks like one of the old desks that actually was in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, and That's then cool. the touchscreen is embedded inside of it. Um, and it's, it's all matched so that it, it tries to at least have, you know, the authenticity of what a desk looks like. So mm-hmm. it feels like it's ingrained inside of it. It's hard, right? I mean, it's a screen inside of a desk, but it has at least a, that, that feel to it. But so a textured touchscreen. Textured touchscreen. Mm-hmm. Splinters. This feels like wood. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you have to take into account different people's heights, right? Like kids need to be able to see it. Um, other people and like how they have to bend down to actually look at things. You have to think about the reflection of the sun and where it sits within the space and how you have to accommodate that. So it's a little bit slanted so that the reflection doesn't hit that too hard. Um, there's a lot of things you have to kind of take into account with that. Um, and we work with a fabricator who helps to, to kind of think through all of those things. Right. What do you think about VR or AR in museum installations? Oh man, you know, I haven't gone too deep into that world. Um, I don't know if anyone has. <laughs> I haven't been to a museum in a while, but well, even like trying it out though, it's like intoxicating. I just it's imagine so that would be sick. Like right now, you look at this installation of prehistoric dinosaurs. What if you like walk into the room and the design- dinosaurs are, like walking around you? You like put why, on a little. Why would you even walk into the room? You can just stay home and have the museum come to you. <laughs> it's all software, man. That's a great point. That is a great point. Well, but if you're in a museum environment, you could have the smells. They could like have that for you. Smell a vision. <laughs> yes. You could have like it. you could touch things. Like you're walking through the grass. I mean, you could like make the environment as See opposed Bryn. to being into. There you go. Room. She's thinking big. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So, how long did you work on that? Um, I was at Second Story. I think about a year and a half before I went back to New York. Um, and then when I be- went back to New York, I, w- I joined Huge, um, mm. a studio agency mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. And I was with them for quite a while, for four years before I joined Airbnb. Wow. So yeah. you did one year, two years. Mm-hmm. Jumping two around years, a lot, trying to figure out years. what the hell I wanted to be and yeah. what I liked. What yeah. did you get uh, get to work on at Huge? Oh, at Huge, I worked on, I mean, it's an agency environment, so I worked on a ton of things. Um, I worked on some stuff for GE Capital. I worked on some stuff for Amex. Google. Um, Is this and, like websites and apps or something else? Yep. Websites, um, apps. Uh, one of my last projects, I got to work on like an entire product suite for um, a Canadian company called Loblaws, um, which is... Wait, did you say Loblaw? Loblaw. Like Bob Loblaw? Uh-huh. Bob Loblaw. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Bob Laws Loblog? <laughs> Bob Laws Loblog. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, I love that show. So good. <laughs> um, but yeah, I worked on a, a wide variety of things, which I actually, one of my forays, one of my worries about going into product, which I should never have been worried about, was that I was going to get bored. That I was, I was not like the diversity of things that you get to work on an agency. Like, I was I going to not have that diversity of things, you know, coming from agency? is like I get to jump around in so many different industries. I get to do all different kinds of branding from different things. Um, that was one of my assumptions that I think was proven wrong. Well, at Airbnb, you probably only work on, like, the one tooltip, and that's, like, your thing. Is, like, oh, that's the, it. That's all yeah. I do for less, the last two and a half years. Amber tooltip cartwright. Tool the tooltips are really nice, by the way. <laughs> A-plus <you> tooltips. <laughs> Very refined. That's the, that's the rap that, you know, you hear in agencies, so. But you stayed there long enough. You must have enjoyed it. I did enjoy it. Um, the environment and the people in Brooklyn were amazing. Um, it was like a family there. 
And I learned a lot. I learned how to pitch things, learn how to tell stories. Um, I learned how to be a leader. I mean, I ended up growing and leading teams there. Um, it was an amazing experience. And I learned how to, like, I just, it was boot camp. Like, I learned how to be, like, a good designer there. So it was, it was great. And you stayed for four years. Can you tell us how to be years. a good designer? <laughs> <laughs> What's it the, takes uh, time. Do you have all the secrets? It takes Jesus. time. <laughs> What's the uh, spark notes of that one? Um, four years. Four years. Why did you decide to leave? I decided to leave because I wanted to transition out of New York and I wanted to try something new. I think four years, um, it was the longest I'd ever stayed anywhere. It's a long time. It's a very yeah, long time. It's a long time. And I knew that I wanted to, you know, all the same reasons that a lot of people say about wanting to leave agencies. Like I, it was time that I felt like I wanted to f like feel something grow and have ownership on something, you know, like you typically only get to work on something that has a lifeline of like six months to a year if you're, if you're lucky. Um, and the pace and the intensity of the timelines could, you live and die by the clients that you have, you know, and that intensity at times can be pretty, pretty great. And I just wanted the the challenge of being somewhere with the topic area that I was really interested in to dive deep. So how did you start looking around it? What was next? I guess when I came here, um, I well, stayed in an Airbnb. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was kind of nice. <laughs> I wonder who's working on this, this area. Uh, did you know San Francisco for sure? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I did. Any just reason? because of the opportunities yeah, here yeah. and also because um it was a like life choice. Like I, I knew I wanted to be in a place where I wanted to get out of New York. Like uh -huh. I'd been there twelve years. I was like, Okay, I need to be somewhere where I can breathe. Yeah. Have the and outdoors, better easy weather, access, yeah. all of the good yeah, things, yeah, yeah. you know, all of the, the normal things about Northern California. Okay, so you knew and then Yeah, I knew. Um and then I just started looking around at, at different companies here. Um and some of my kind of criteria I was looking for was, well, I want to make sure that there are enough challenges. You know, one of my fears was that, am I going to get bored? You know, is there is there a place that is still growing? You know, it still is like trying to figure things out. Um, another thing I was thinking about was, you know, where is design and the level of leadership? you know, like in the team, like, is there ah. a place for designers in leadership? Um, and how high does that leadership go for design? Um, where are they in terms of being able to have a voice and say, um, and how deep does that go? And like, where are they positioned within structures of teams? So that, that helped me make a decision um, about Airbnb. Just curious, were there other companies that also fit that criteria or was Airbnb unique? Airbnb at that time, like two and a half years ago, was the one that stood out. I think things are changing within that criteria and I've, I've seen it change um, in the last- Like with other companies? With other companies. I've been seeing it change quite a bit. Um, but at that time, it was the one that really stood out. I feel like Airbnb still sticks out because of Joe Gebbia, right? Like he mm -hmm. is the design leader, like design co-founder. Yeah, I mean, Joe and Brian both went to RISD. Um, they're both, you know, ingrained and in, in founders of design. So they both um, inherently believe that design at its core is, you know, part and parcel to the function of how the product team and the thinking behind the product, it should be part of it. You know, it's at its heart. Um, so that is pretty unique, I think, just 
to other companies. Um, but what I have seen and, you know, design thinking is, is a buzzword. It's a trend word, you know, it's thank kind of you. happening oh everywhere. Oh my God, thank you. I <laughs> fucking hate that word so, or not word, but that phrase, phrase so much. Yeah. Ugh. It's an ideo thing, right? You could just say thinking. It's just a process. <laughs> but but. I, <laughs> but I do see it changing. I do see that um, just through the products themselves that you can see it being put forward and that you can see design is being prioritized in other products and and what they're doing like at other companies. So I think that the trend is changing from what I'm starting to see, like why? in terms of the product. Why do you think that is? I think that um, the value of the experiences is that we are seeing value in experiences and the proof of that is is coming forward in, in certain products. Um, there are different strategies that are showing the, the proof of that. And I think that that is... Like what? Um, the argument over experience versus metrics. And I think that experiences are, are is starting to show that it's quantifiable, that there is value to, to bringing forward a great experience and design, and it is showing itself and it's proving itself. How does that compare against like the qualitative taste argument? Like mm -hmm. I, I would agree that experience factors into taste, mm -hmm. but it, the way I often hear it is, uh, taste versus stats right mm. like something can be a stat booster but you have to use some level of taste or intuition to figure out if it will continue that trend long term because it might not mm. right like uh, i think the example josh puckett gave was that they had a mailing list and when they would email people twice a week short term it like boosted their numbers by like 50 percent yeah mm. but over the long term it dropped their mailing list significantly sure like well but i think you know when you look at stuff like metrics i mean you have to also ask what are you trying to measure mm -hmm. like when you're looking at you can look at something and it has a short-term effect okay are you asking the right question are you asking the right question um you also have to ask what's the long-term effect so mm -hmm. when it comes to taste um and style and brand there are long-term effects well how can you ask the right question to understand that and measure it and i think there are there potentially are ways to do that um, but you have to ask the right question in order to get that, if that makes sense. I totally agree. I just, yeah. yeah I'm yeah. curious how uh, metrics manifest it. Airbnb, like how they inform or are involved in the design process. Um, they're they're quite forward. They're quite upfront. Um, and I think different teams have different approaches to it. Actually, it depends on the work that you're doing. But um, data is is ingrained with us. Uh, we try to, just like what I just described, we're trying to make sure that we're asking the right questions of the metrics, that the metrics aren't just driving something for no reason. Um, data informs everything that we do, but data is one input. It's one lever. Um, data can mean many things. Data can be, you know, the quantifiable, like, volume of information we get back, right, from the the ERFs and, and those things that you A-B test on. It's an ERF. ERF. <laughs> ah, yes, the ERFs. <laughs> But data can also be qualitative. You know, it can also be, well, what are our users actually saying? You, you didn't know, answer what, what an ERF is. <laughs> oh, that was a very subtle... Uh... Oh, you're serious. Okay. <laughs> data, it is the measurement, the reports on uh -huh. um, when you put something out and A-B test it. It is the actual report that you're reading. Like, yeah. did it boost it 25%? Did it boost it 2%? That is the report back. Got it. So that's one form of data. Yeah. Um, another form of data is the qualitative. Right. Um, so all of these different pieces equal up to a measure something. 
So we look at those things and we try to ask, like, is this the right way to measure it? And if it's not, then we're not asking the right question and we're not measuring it the right way. And we also always look to make sure we have countermeasures. So, you know, so take, for example, like I want to like we want hosts to publish a listing. Well, of course we do. You know, we want them to publish something and get it out there. But did they actually book a guest? You know, like that's the countermeasure. Like, great. We have people who are publishing listings all over the place. But if they don't get a booking. Doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean much. Right. Because they actually need to make sure that they're they're actually getting something that they need. Right. Which is actually get people to stay with them, mm -hmm. which is in the end what they really want, what they really need. So something might not be happening in between that publishing and actually getting someone that's not working for them. And that's the counter metric that we need to make sure is happening. So those are like the ways that we try and think about it. Can you share a little bit? So you work on guest love mm -hmm. is like the the parent of some different projects. And what teams. does guest love mean? Guest love our core service because it's magical to use. That's our vision statement. But what does it actually mean? <laughs> <laughs> so guest love um, in terms of like how it, what it means in, within our internal structure. Yeah. So guest love is what we call an outcome. Like it's one of our missions. It's one of our teams. We have um, several outcomes that the, the company is going for. Um, and so within guest love, we have sub teams that are trying to meet that, that vision. Is, is that like guests loving you or are you loving guests or guests loving each other? Guests loving Airbnb. Okay. Oh, interesting. there we go. Yes. Guests love. So like customer satisfaction. Guests love Airbnb so that <laughs> they, it's not cause it's, yeah, they, they love our, they love us and our service so they want to be with us is there a metric for guest love how often they get married <laughs> um well we all you know the metric that we think about with experience is how many how many trips are they taking how many experience how many great experiences are they having um because that means if they're taking trips and they're having great experiences that means we're fulfilling our our vision, you know, travel is the ultimate product for us. It's not the thing that you're actually using and touching and swiping. Travel is our product. It's the experience. It's having an experience. So if we're actually winning on guest loving Airbnb, then they're traveling. Would I be right in saying the measurement is guest number of guest experiences and the countermeasure is whether the experience is good or bad? Um. The metric would be um, the trips that they're taking. Okay. And then the countermeasure can be a many number of things depending on, you know, what the team would be working uh, on. Like, do they do it again? Right. Or the quality of the trip right, or right. Um, if they're getting canceled on or like we have many different kind of countermeasurements that we're looking for. Why, why did the team come up with that instead of like um, host love? I don't know. Oh, sure. Like, why not the other? Sure. No, we have, um, there, oh, there, is. there are others. <laughs> okay. Yeah, there are other teams. We have a host and homes okay. team. Um, we also have like a guest growth team um, or outcome. These are outcomes. Um, so we have different outcomes that are trying to achieve um, like a, a goal that um, we have set for, you know, 2017. And they, they can shift depending on what our most important priorities are at the moment. So you started two years ago? Yes. How big was the team at the time? I started with about 10 designers uh -huh. on the team. I was an experienced designer too uh -huh. <laughs> at the time. How many is it now? It's like Wow, we, we are big. Yeah, so Epic is what we are called. And that includes experienced designers, production designers, 
um, insights, which is now experienced researchers and um, contents. And all of those comprise around 100 now. Wow. Um, but just experienced designers, I believe, is around 65-ish now. What's that evolution been like for you? That's a lot of doubling. It is. And in two, two and a half years, it's like 5x growth. Right. It's pretty crazy. Um, it's been, I mean, for me, it's it's just been this like wild ride straight up. Um, but it's been remarkably, we haven't lost our culture, which has been amazing to kind of see and watch. Like it still feels like a family, even though we're like at 100 and we were at 10 or before. Um We've somehow maintained that closeness, which is pretty great. Why do you think that is? I think it's um, a lot of things. I think it's from all the way from the recruitment process and like how and what we're looking for and like how we want to build the team to the kinds of things that we do with the team. Um, and We should break each of those apart. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What do you look for? How, how do you make sure that someone that comes in do you look for someone that maintains that culture and someone that fits in, or is it about looking for someone that evolves the culture and will be different? I think it's both. Um, I think we're looking for someone that expresses kind of the core values of the company. Um, and, you know, we have a set of core values that the company kind of, you know, holds dear and near. But we also want to make sure that we, especially in the design team, are looking for different types of people and and kind of personalities and characteristics that's going to make sure that we are growing and evolving and are well-rounded, you know? Um, Do you talk about what those values are? Yeah, we have, um, I can, I can name a few. I I can't rattle all of them off Mm -hmm. um, off the top of my head, but one of them is be a host, Um, making sure that at all times you're treating others with respect and being a good host to everyone. And and no matter who that is, like whoever's in the building, um, whoever's visiting, um, you're treating, you know, your fellow employees in that way, Mm -hmm. um, you know, respect at all times. Um, Another is a serial entrepreneur, um, being scrappy, resilient, um, looking for um, being independent and finding ways to solve problems quickly. Those are a couple that I can think of off the top of my head. How do those two come up in an interview process? Mm, I mean, I kind of get the respect. Like, is this person an asshole to talk to? Yeah. (laughs) So actually- So Brian must have failed his interview. (laughs) Well, let's not talk about how my interview there went, buddy. Thanks. (laughs) Just kidding. I haven't interviewed. interviewed It's like like awkward. (laughs) 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 No, I have not interviewed. so the interview process, uh, each person kind of comes in and we have two core value interviewers. So people who um, are specifically trained on hmm. like this, these topics in particular. And it's actually very um, elite to be part of that team who does this work and talks and interviews um, for that. It's very special to be nominated to be a core values interviewer. Um, and so you the candidate talks to two of those people and then they talk to four um, designers as well. Um, so that that process is balanced between, you know, looking for the skills and the right fit and role of the team, as well as like the, the kind of representation of the values of the company. And the serial entrepreneur, is that like side projects? Um, no, are there- those are just like representation of like characteristics. Right. But like what, how do you identify that that person has the 
Oh, they, serial they look for. Oh, sure. They, they there's certain questions that they that they ask and prompts that they kind of speak to, and then those are certain things too that we can kind of understand when we talk to them in their work as well from a design perspective. So it's not necessarily just side projects. It's like no, the way they respond, the to, way that they approach uh, problems and problem solving. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And then the second piece was the culture has stayed the same because of the people you've hired, but also what happens. Oh, we also, yeah, we also do a lot of things together. And so like, I think in a week and a half, we're all going for an overnight offsite together. Cool. Um, It's a surprise. So I don't know where we're going, (laughs) but the whole team is going somewhere. Um, And we do lots of things like that together. And also everybody on the team kind of just ad hoc will have a party somewhere or, We'll have, you know, lunch together or this is just the design team. Yeah. The Epic team. The whole company. Team. Yeah. I was going to say like, what? <laughs> or I wasn't sure if it was like the guest love team. <laughs> the design team. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. So I, we just spent a lot of time together. Wouldn't it be ironic if you guys had to get a hotel? It wouldn't happen. Never. Well, I wouldn't say never. <laughs> <laughs> Give it another try, hundred people and then really see if Airbnb hard. can really solve that one. <laughs> um. Did you start as a design manager? I did not. I um, started as an experienced designer. And um, I think it was maybe three months in, I became a experienced lead. Um, and then from there- You proved yourself quick. Well, I was a lead before. Okay. Um, so it was, it was just a quick transition into lead. And then I was the first design manager at Airbnb. Whoa. Yeah, it was pretty cool. How did that happen? Um, I think it was maybe I was a year in to the job and the team was scaling pretty fast. Uh, so there was just a natural kind of progression of, well, the team needs to be structured in a different way. And the structure was, okay, well, now we need, Katie was managing everybody, Katie Dill, our um, head of experience design. And it was, she couldn't, it was not possible for her to continue to manage, like, I don't know if it was maybe about 25 people at that time. So we needed to scale, we needed to restructure. Um, and so she needed to have design managers underneath of her. And I guess I fit the bill at the time. Did you um, want to be a design manager? You fit the dill? I fit the dill, the dillio. Um, it's a good question. Um, she and I talked about that quite extensively because at Airbnb, you can either be a design manager or a principal. Like you can take one of two paths. And I wasn't sure, to be honest. Um, it was a question of time. Like, do I want to be 80% in the pixels and 20% leading teams? Or do I want to be 80% creative direction and say 20% in the pixels? And uh, she kind of encouraged me to think about, you know, what I would learn from from that role. And Nothing. Leading other people. <laughs> I've eternal, learned a lot. Eternal optimist, Bryn Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> well, I learned a lot. And I took that path and I haven't turned back yet. Okay. What was the transition like? Into, into design manager? Yeah. And also, you, you also you're interchanging that with creative direction. Yeah, so at Airbnb, um, design manager doesn't mean that you're just managing someone's career. You're also creative directing and um, actually doing creative direction on product work. Why? Why? Yeah. Um, Because the belief is, and I actually believe this as well, is that to actually be able to give guidance and advice and mentorship to other designers, you actually have to be able to do that work yourself. Yep. You believe that too? Absolutely. Okay, question. 
do you manage a principal designer that is more experienced than you? Or has that just not happened? Currently, I do not manage anyone who has more experience than I do at Airbnb. If anything, they're at the same level of experience to me. Well, actually, maybe one has maybe a few more years of experience than I do. If we can talk in hypotheticals. We can talk in hypotheticals, yeah. If that is the reasoning, Mm -hmm. then there's not really such a thing as two-track manager versus principal, right? Because it would always imply that a manager is more experienced and more senior than a principal. I wouldn't say more experienced, but more senior possibly. Like has more control, has more say. It sounded think, to me, by virtue of being a manager. But it sounded like it was more experienced. Like you have to be able to do the thing that you're telling someone to do. Yeah, but or just, guiding them to do, I guess. Right. But um because I can just because someone can do the thing, um guidance also is a skill. Mm-hmm. And mentorship is a skill. Yeah. Yeah. Um and having doesn't and that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have five years of experience more than someone to be able to do that well. And the creative direction, I mean, I think that there you might have a point if someone had 10 more years of experience on me, but maybe if you're talking about like a couple of years of experience, yeah. I'm not sure if that really. Yeah, I guess what I'm do, getting at. Do you at. think if, okay, so if, if there were two Amber Cartwrights and one picked the pixel route and one picked the management route, yep. do you think that the one that picked the management route would have more say or more seniority or more, I don't know, control? Hmm. No. Really? Why would you think that a, that would person would have more say or more control? Because the manager is simultaneously the creative director. Mm, but, but the principal also, so maybe I should um, clarify it a bit more. The principal can also lead teams um, at Airbnb. Um, and in the current structure, I could have a principal within Guest Love, Um but my the structure is is that I'm also in a, a role where I just I'm an outcome lead where I'm overseeing several teams. So a principal can be just a lead on that team. So I would just naturally they're just kind of there. But it doesn't mean that a principal can't be at the same level as me. So they that's the great thing about it actually. Just because you choose to be a craftsman doesn't mean that you can't be a senior leader. Like that's that's why the structure is in place, and that's what I think is actually really awesome about it. But see, that's what I'm wondering about, and I'd love your opinion. Is what if, um, just for the sake of my own abstraction, let's say you're like a level four mm-hmm. contrib. Uh, I see. Hmm. Could you have a lower leveled manager? I guess. Mm-hmm that is managing a very, very senior craftsman IC? I don't think so. But why not? Like, is, isn't there an argument to be made that management is a different skill set and like I can manage a very senior IC's I hear pixel what work? I hear what you're saying. Oh, yeah. I don't know if I agree with it, no, I hear but what I you're could saying. see how that might happen, right? No, I, I could see your argument. I think where we are though, at least in the structure that I see and currently where we are and, and potentially I see your point. Um, I don't think we would put a brand new manager managing someone who's super senior. Like that's just not a good structure to like put someone who's brand new and managing doing something like that. Um, the way that we're structured right now is 
currently I manage people who are managers and leaders. Like that's how it kind of works up. So someone who's a brand new manager would be managing ICs. Does that make sense? And then as you go up, so I would be managing senior principals. But you could have a brand new manager managing an IC that's senior. A senior IC, but not a principal. Okay. If that makes sense. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I'm trying to envision the like overlap. The structure. Yeah. Um, Okay. Does that make sense? I think so. Okay. I'm really interested nowadays of like that dynamic of the paths that are available to design managers. Mm -hmm. And in this case, like slash creative direction, Mm -hmm. the paths of ICs and like, where do the skill sets split enough that you could have a manager who's been managing for two or three years Mm -hmm. working with an IC that's been around for 10 years and is very, very experienced. Like anyway, this this came from a Twitter conversation, right? Who has the power? Who makes decisions? Like, what's that? What does that dynamic look like? Yeah, where they're very different skill sets. Yeah, but the statement was one person is a manager. Any manager inherently has more powerful than an IC at the same level. Oh, hmm. so that is the question he's trying to get at through a twenty-minute line of questions. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well, that's currently not how things work where we are. But I could I could see where your line of questioning. Or like, I can see where you're going. And maybe that's, I mean, we're not at a scale necessarily where that's, where that structure is working, but that's something to be cautious of, I think. And that's something that to be cognizant of. There are pitfalls to that. You know, there are Mm -hmm. dangers to that. Yeah. I'm curious for you then. So you started out as a design manager of ICs and now you're a design manager of principals. And leaders. And leaders. What's that transition been like? It's been really interesting. Um, you know, I think managing ICs and, you know, because I've been doing this for a little while now, um, uh-huh. I could start seeing patterns from working myself as a designer and then seeing other designers. Like, I, I was like, oh, I see patterns. I know how I can see someone hitting this wall. I know how to work through that wall. Um, and it was, that was kind of easier for me to handle like because I could I knew it's like okay I've seen this done before and I've seen this I can get through this when I started managing leaders um, or other managers and leads of teams it's different I mean these people already know what to do Um, these are they're already manning their own ship you know they already are they're running teams they um, have worked through a lot of the problems. They know how to problem solve on their own. So what do you do? And what can you bring to people as a manager, you know, in these situations? And it's been re- challenging and really interesting um, to to work to work with them and work through this. And I, I guess what I'm learning is is not to be someone that needs to actually be a solution for them. I need to understand what their strengths and weaknesses are and help them to figure out how to leverage those, if that makes sense. It's like uh-huh. parenting. In Don't do it all for your kid. Just just let them ride the bike and fall, in a sense. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> understand that that's coming. Um, yeah. But I think that is really interesting. Like, you're not there to say, I can unblock you. I know the answer. Yeah. So would you say that it becomes a little more like two-directional? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I learn as much for them as hopefully, you know, right. they learn from me. But I, what I try 
to do is kind of listen and then, you know, show different paths and different options. You know, we kind of talk through, it's more conversations than it is guiding towards one particular direction. It's not direction. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. The, so I just left a job where I was leading my first team. It was very small, but I kind of, at first I saw it as I don't get to do the same thing anymore because I'm like showing you how to do this thing. But once I saw it as like multiplying my own output, I was like, okay, this is dope. I like this. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, I still spent a significant amount of time in pixels, but like that other time I just didn't know how to handle it. Yeah. So how do you, it was a learning experience for sure. Well, I'd, I'd be curious for you as well, Bryn, um, but how did you, how do you manage uh, like your own idea of product goals and product direction versus your team's career, like the people problems. I don't know how to answer that. What about for you, Amber? Managing people versus products. Uh, it seems. I mean, I don't know. I I don't know much about this space, but I imagine that you have an idea of the product and and what's possible and where it's going and the direction the company's going, weighed against like your reports career trajectory Mm -hmm. and their own personal goals and things like that. Mm -hmm. Like how do those balance each other out or how do you decide when to focus in on one versus the other? Sure. I mean, I think it's always a conversation. Um, What I typically do with speaking to um, my directs is for just understanding, you know, what those goals are. There's short-term goals and there's long-term goals. And if we, both know what those are and then also understanding you know the vision of the product and and where things are going i think it's easier to kind of weave in those goals into that trajectory Um, we both can kind of look forward and say like okay if we know this is what you want to do how can we weave this into the story where the company is headed and like where where does that fit in and if it's not fitting in how do we create the opportunities for it to fit in yeah what if it doesn't fit in there's always ways for it to fit in because if it doesn't fit into the product, I find that goals can also be achieved outside of what you're doing at Airbnb. Um, there's things that you can do. I mean, and outside of the product, like you can look to the design team to achieve certain goals too. Like it doesn't have to necessarily be fit into the niche of like, this is exactly what you know the product is shipping. Like if a goal is to encourage um, team health, and happiness like there's a way to do that that doesn't necessarily mean like happiness and success means we're shipping x product and reaching this goal like it can be done in other methods you know it could also be like well why don't we do speaking events and do other things outside of it like there's opportunities that can be shaped but if you know what you want to do i think there's always a way to weave it in do you think that a solution could ever be that the person shouldn't be at the company anymore I think there's always a possibility for that, but that should never not be part of the conversation. Right. If someone is finding a path that leads them away from where they currently are, then that's the path that they should take. Happiness is number one. Ah, for hosts, guests, and employees. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> cool. Yeah, I, f- I think that is is very interesting to me, like the the point where the person's individual and career goals can't really mesh with either where they are in the company or where the company is heading. It happens. Hard I mean, conversations. Yeah, it happens, but that's the best for the company and the person in the end, I think. Right. Um, you recently wrote a post yes. on the Airbnb design blog. 
Yes. Could you talk a little bit about what that was about? Yes. Um, I wrote a post that was talking about really two things. Well, it's, it's called invisible design, but it's, it's trying to talk about two things that we need to have a process in order to have conversations about how to enable um, talking about uh, designers talking to um, data scientists and engineers with technologies and machine learning. And then the second part um, is, you know, algorithms are changing the tools that we build in. So there's two parts to the conversation and the article. I touch a lot on the former part, on the process, and lightly touch on the second part. A lot of my colleagues, like Giles Colburn, are, are really talking a lot about algorithms changing the tools that designers are using. So I'm talking more about the process. Well, so share a little more. So what do you mean by uh, like working more with the engineers and, and data, data scientists? scientists? Sure. So um, let's take an example. Um, right now, Designers have methods and ways to enable conversations. Like processes in general are just ways to enable conversations. Um, a kickoff is a conversation. Wireframes are visual maps that create conversations between, you know, designers and the rest of the product team. I think what I'm trying to talk like talk about is how do we have something that we can go to as a tool that we can talk together that shows the the insides of what machine learning is, like the black box of technology. So if we take an example from design, if an engineer says like, hey, I I really need a button that that says go. We're doing a one, two, three simple step and I need a button that says go. Why don't we just use a green button? Like, and with this is go, like totally logical, right? Well, then we'll pull up our DLS, you know, our design language system. We're like, well, wait, why don't we look at this? And we have a visual map. And it's like, actually, here's our components. A green button doesn't make sense. Actually, we're going to use this button. We have this like process and visual map to have a conversation about what's right in our system. But if you take the reverse, a, a different example, and say like a designer goes to our ranking engineer and says like, I really want to show the top result that's the exact best result for a trip for a guest with only two questions. And the engineer is probably going to say, ah, doesn't really work that way. I can give you the top 10 most relevant results if with these two things. I'm like, well, okay. Well, what exactly is inside of that ranking engine? Like, oh, well, it's really complicated. There's a lot of math. I'm like, I'm kind of sick of that answer. Like, it's this black box. Well, what exactly is in that ranking algorithm? And if we had, like, the same kind of map, like the design language system, we could pull up our components map for machine learning and say, like, here's our ranking map, then it would be a much easier conversation to have. But we don't have that. Like, Data scientists and engineers work in code and in math. Mm -hmm. And that's, there's no way to have a conversation that's the same language, right, between product and other people who don't speak math to enable that conversation. And what I'm trying to say with invisible design is let's create, let's create that map mm -hmm. so that we can have a conversation. And invisible design is just like, well, we can do that. We're designers. You know, we it's don't like need a math degree. Designers as interpreters. Yeah. And it can be simple. I mean, it can be flow diagrams, it could be charts, but we need to unearth that black box so that we can understand and influence the user experience because 
ranking and different like machine learning and artificial intelligence is affecting the user experience for so many different products now is going to continue to be an influence and we need to be able to understand that and also affect that in the user experience and if mm-hmm. we can't have that conversation we're not going to be able to have a say in what's going into that so to be clear you would be advocating for a more open conversation between let's say enge- uh, designers and data scientists/engineers to the point where design can perhaps inform and guide like the way we think about more technical processes like algorithms and ranking yep. and things like that. Yep. Um, yes, absolutely. We need to be able to all talk more. I don't think it's enough just to be sitting next to somebody in the same room. Um, if we're not able to all talk about things at the same level. Um, you got to speak the same language. Right. We're not moving the product forward. What's the reaction been to the post? The reaction has been mixed. Okay. Um, I think I, I had an immediate um, outpouring of love from uh, machine learning engineers, data scientists, and then a fraction or a portion of designers. And then I had some other reactions, not negative, but kind of, eh, I'm not sure about this from another segment of designers. And it's more so the sense that I'm getting is, like, I just don't really understand this world, so I'm going to not think about it. Should designers data? <laughs> <laughs> you would say? Yes. Yes. So, okay, how is this different than data-driven design, where people take data inputs to influence design? Is it different? This isn't about data driving design Mm -hmm. this is about a process to understand how data can influence design okay so data step back yeah data should have an impact on design i i believe Mm -hmm. um it should influence it but if we don't understand what that data is and how it influences it then we're not truly taking part in that process got it so why do you why do you think the the second group of people the mixed reaction group First of all, you said it was only designers. Mm. Uh, why do you think that is? And then second, like why why do you think there is that fear? And is it is that a realistic fear and an understandable one, or is it something that people need to get over? Well, I think it's. I mean, this is hypothetical. It's like this is just me observing you know, reactions from different people. But you know, human nature is averse to change. Um, so I think some people are reacting from, I don't want to make adjustments to my day-to-day process. This is something new I have to learn and something new I have to understand. And math is not necessarily an inherent part of a designer's job, Uh but you don't have to be a mathematician to do this. Um, this is like saying actually the opposite, like you just need to understand it. And that to me is like, don't you want to understand how a thing works so you can design it? Right. Um, but I think those are kind of the, the feelings that I get is, uh, I I just learned how to like make this thing. Now you're going to tell me I have to do yet. I have to learn yet another thing to like actually make this thing. So I think I'm getting some of those reactions from that. That's the pushback that I'm getting. Working with all this data in the guest love segment, Hmm. have you come across trends that are inhibiting to people to 
traveling and staying? Have you come across things that are hard to solve within the guest love area? Just from a data perspective in general? Yeah. Are you uncovering trends that way? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the data informs us a lot about um, travel behavior and and like what it's influencing within our products. Um, and I think it's going to have a continued impact on like what we can actually do with mm-hmm. our products. Um, you know, one of the things that that we will, we really want to do and that we just um, actually launched with in April is making sure that we're matching people together with the right trips and the right hosts. Mm-hmm. Like in order to do that, we have to understand who you are and we have to understand yeah. what trips you want to take. And we have to remember that. And like, how do we do that if we don't collect that data and that information from you? So if I'm understanding correctly is, I just want to make sure I get the, the point of this is like right now, Airbnb matches hosts and guests. And that happens because of an algorithm, uh, some sort of ranking algorithm. Well, what we're doing in the new app is asking you explicit questions and those questions lead to results. Okay. And that affects, yes, the relevant results. So you're saying design should have a more, first of all, an impact on on the way that works. Mm-hmm. Um, not just like the questions we ask, but like the weight of those questions individually, mm-hmm. like into yep. the algorithm. Um, and then a way to manifest that ranking algorithm in a way that anybody within the company or on the product team could look at and point to and say like, this is the part that's working. This is the part that's not working. So that we can understand it. Yeah. I understand. Um, I think there's, you know, you can have principles of ranking, which actually Facebook has principles of their ranking, but is that enough? Right. Um, And is that enough to, you know, affect like understanding like the user experience? I mean, if you think about it, like Google their entire search product is ranking, right. you know, and as a you know user experience, that is the main part of it. And um, the inputs and in that into that, I would want to understand. Right. From a product perspective. If I'm thinking of it in Facebook terms as like, how on earth could you be a good designer on the newsfeed if you don't understand the newsfeed algorithm? And is that algorithm presented in such a way that designers can inform and right. be informed by it. Right, exactly. It. Makes sense. Um, yeah. So what's next in terms of that process's evolution for you and for Airbnb? Um, so I'm continuing to work on it and talk about it and write about it. Um, I work closely with uh, my data science partner um, in developing this. He and I are, are partners in crime on this pro- uh, project. Um, he is just as passionate about it as I am. Um, so we're working on a, a couple of projects that is taking this forward. And we're working directly with our teams on on how to ingrain this more directly in the process. So there's more to come and we'll you'll see more um, written about it and talked about. Cool. So you've yeah. got more posts lined up. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Sweet. Um, we're over time. Anything you want to <laughs> plug before well you go? Time. No. Wow. Time flies, that is amazing. huh? We didn't even get into <laughs> to some other stuff. So yeah, that'll be next great. time. Did you get what you need? Yeah, yeah. we'll have to do another one. Uh, okay. Is there anything you want to plug? I don't think so. I mean, um, no, I guess uh, I talked about my article. So if Airbnb.design. Oh, yeah. What a yeah. great URL. Yeah, Company. guys, check out Airbnb.design. <laughs> check out my article on Medium. Um, would love to hear feedback and responses on invisible design. Sweet. Thank you. 
thanks for taking the time. Thank you, guys. That was episode 146. Thank you so much to Amber for coming and hanging out with us for an hour. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, hit us up. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM. Of course, if you are enjoying the show, let us know what you think in an iTunes review because that means so much to us. We love reading them. And reviews help us move up the charts, helps new designers discover the show. And we really appreciate that. So if you have a second, uh, an iTunes review uh, with feedback or comments or criticisms are totally fair game. We'd love to read them. But of course, before we go, huge thank you to Dropbox and Skirt for making this episode possible. Dropbox is hiring. They want designers and design managers to help shape the way people work together, make it simpler, make it better. Up until now, Dropbox has just been about file syncing, but now they're going to change the way we build products. They want you to join them. If you want a job, learn more at spec.fm slash Dropbox. That's all seniority levels of designer as well as design managers. So options for everybody. Again, that's at spec.fm slash Dropbox. Our second sponsor, once again, Skirt. Skirt is a service that allows you to tap a button and have a car delivered to you. Whatever kind of car you need, uh, they'll bring it to you. When you're ready, they'll come pick it up. They're hiring designers. They just raised money and they're looking for senior product designers and visual designers to work directly with their co-founding team and their creative director to make huge sweeping changes across the product. And they've got tens of thousands of users that will see it immediately. You can ship stuff. You can have a lot of ownership. Definitely a place to check out. It's a startup. You get to do everything, have a ton of impact and build a lot of cool shit. It's hard as shit, but it's so fucking valuable rewarding rewarding to learn more go to spec.fm slash skirt that's s-k-u-r-t skirt and if you just want to try the service at all you can use design 20 as a promo code on the skirt app and that'll save you 20 bucks on your first car booking thank you once again to skirt thank you once again to dropbox we'll see you all on wednesday with jessica collier